Well, hello, everybody. What is good with all the people on this globe? Yo, we got a good one today. We got a good scripture study. And I know I always say we got a good one and I'm so excited for it. But guess what? It's the truth, okay? It's the truth. The Bible is never not good. So there's never not going to be an episode of this podcast that's not good unless we're not talking about the Bible because the Bible is always so good and it brings so much truth. And if you study it, you just, you really start to just connect some dots and it makes your life so much cooler. But before we hop into it, and we're going to be reading through uh, James chapter 1 verses 12 through 27 because last week we left off at verse 11. Um, before we hop into that scripture study, I had an idea and I want to see what y'all think about it. Um, I'm looking to do an episode of Q&A, a question and answer episode. And the reason why I'm wanting to do this is because throughout my study, throughout the last year and a half, I have found something pretty interesting. Throughout my study in the last year and a half, I have came across a lot of things that challenged my faith, challenged it in a way where I had doubts. And what, what I noticed was, is that For a lot of believers, and even some non-believers, we have serious questions about the Bible, about faith, about God's existence, about things like science and evolution and and how this, you know, relates to the Bible. And and we'll, we'll hear about these supposed contradictions between the Bible and science or history. And if we're, if we're not perceptive, to what is going on, it can really shake our faith. And what's sad about it is, is that these problems are really important for a lot of people. These are problems that can be roadblocks for people stepping into the faith and believing in Jesus Christ. So this is, this is serious stuff. And what's sad is, is that a lot of these problems that have caused people to either walk away from the faith, or just completely not believe at all. A lot of these problems never get addressed by the church. They never get addressed. These are serious things, especially in in the generation that we're in right now. It seems like it is so easy to just find things on the internet that seem to poke holes in the Bible or in the reality of God's existence. And if you're not equipped, and if you don't know the answers to these things right off the bat, it can cause you to stumble in doubt. And what breaks my heart is that so many people can get talked out of the faith simply because they were never talked into it. Simply because from day one, we've been told that we're just supposed to believe And if there are things that seem like they are are roadblocks or questions or contradictions, we're told to just ignore them and just have more faith. But can I tell you something? That's not what faith is. Faith isn't just believing blindly without evidence or with evidence to the contrary. Our faith can actually be strengthened by learning about the things in this world. So So many people nowadays especially believers, can fall into this trap of being 
anti-intellectual, anti-reason, anti-rationality, anti-science, all of these things. Because we've been told from people in the mainstream that these things contradict Christianity when they really don't. So, so my heart is, and what I'm wanting to do is, I would love it if you guys would send me questions that you have. Now, I don't have all the answers, but I've done enough research to where a lot of the the main questions that people may have that that may cause them to to question or to stumble in their faith, a lot of these things have very simple, intellectual, and well-thought-out answers in in reasoning. And so what I would love for y'all to do is if you have questions like this about anything, any concerns you see in the Bible, anything that you are confused about, if you see something in terms of like, you know, science or evolution or, you know, what the Bible means about this, or if you see things that seem like contradictions, send me those questions. I have an email address for the podcast. It's youchristianpod at gmail.com. It'll be in the description, so you can go check it out there. If you have these questions, send them to me, and if I get enough questions, I will do an episode where I do my best to answer them, and I think that this will be really helpful to a lot of people. So that's my little soapbox spiel, and we're going to hop into James chapter 1, verses 12 through 27. Now, if y'all did not listen to the last episode, you're going to be confused why... I refer to James as Jacob from here on out. And that's because, like what we covered in the last episode, um, his name is actually Jacob. The Greek and Hebrew roots for what we translate as James is literally Jacob. So that's his name. That's what we're going to call him. But he starts us off in, in verse 12, where we're going to pick up. And we're going to read through this here. It says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, last week, we learned a little little something about faith. Um, And it was in chapter 1 and verse 3. And Jacob gave us this idea of the importance of our faith being tested and enduring through that test so that our faith has a chance to grow. And in the first part of chapter one, um, we hear from our perspective. We get a good idea of why it's important for us to endure and have that type of faith. We, We hear that from our perspective because when we do, our faith will be perfected in terms of being able to endure the trials and tests. So we hear from our perspective. And there's something, there's something interesting about a faith that endures. It shows it's not weak. It shows that it is built on solid ground. You know, if we're not careful, we can get bitter about the things that we have to endure. We can be upset with God for the things that he may allow to happen in our life. The trials, the the testing, the pain, the confusion that we may have to go through. If we're not careful, we can get bitter because of that. But you know what? If you never go through those things, your faith has no value. Your faith has no value in your life if it is never put to use. I think of it like a car, right? Imagine you got this nice ride, whatever it is for you, a Lamborghini, Ferrari. Uh, I, I, I don't know, right? I'm not a car dude. For me, it'd be like a Tesla or something. But imagine you have this just nice ride. This mug is clean. You're showing it off to your friends and it's expensive, right? So you would imagine it has value. And to other people, even, it may have value. But this car, brings you no value in your life if it is never used and if you never take it for a ride. It has absolutely zero value 
to how you live your life. And a lot of times, we like that type of idea of faith. It doesn't seem logical with a car, right? You spend all this money on a car and it just sits there. It's never used. But we use our faith like that sometimes. Sometimes we are just fine with having a faith that looks like it's good enough, that looks like it's strong to the outside world, but it never has the chance to be used or applied in our everyday life if we're not using our faith during these trials. And what happens is, is that this type of faith ends up at a belief of God, but not a belief in God. And and to kind of give you an example, a belief of God acknowledges he exists, but a belief in God acknowledges his necessity. So a belief in Jesus is a belief that endures, not because he exists, but because you realize that he is necessary to your life. So that, that's our perspective, and that's what Jacob gave us in chapter 1 and verse 3. But now we hear in verse 12, we get to hear a little bit of God's perspective. Because God said that he blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. And afterward, we will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So he's giving us this idea of how he rewards and how he values the endurance of our faith. And why is it so important to God that we can patiently endure? You ever thought about that? Like what value does that give God? Like God is omnipotent, omniscient, morally perfect. He has everything he could need. So why does it matter if we patiently endure? Why is this so important to him? Well, think about it like this. The only people who patiently endure are the ones who are committed to the relationship. I think sometimes we forget that this this bond that we have with God is a relationship. It's a relationship. That's why he says, God, the father. That's why we are called his children. That's why Christ says that we are the bride and he loves us in that way. We are in a partnership. We are in a covenant with God. Therefore, we are in a relationship with God. Now imagine this, and this may sound rude, but how can we expect God to be faithful? Like how can we hold God to that standard if we aren't willing to be faithful for him? If we aren't willing to endure for him, how how do we have any right to hold God to a standard where we expect him to be faithful and show up when we need him if we don't even do the same thing? See, if we if we view what God is saying about enduring in faith in the in the lens of it being a relationship like it is, you can start to think of how this may apply to your life, right? Because there's not a single one of you who would want to be in a relationship with somebody who is unwilling to endure trials with you. You would not want to to date someone where the second things get tough, the second you might have a little disagreement, they just roll out. You would not want to be with someone where if you if you run into health complications that are not your fault, they just say, hey man, this, this is a little bit too tough. I gotta bounce. So why should we subject God to that same type of reasoning? So God was to reward us for being enduring and patient in our faith. On to verse 13. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted 
by evil. In other words, he is unable to be enticed by sin and he never tempts anyone else. So the first thing that came to my mind when I was when I was breaking down this verse is I was like, yeah, you know, that's awesome. God can't be tempted. He, you know, he don't tempt nobody else. Like, oh, that's so cool. But the first thing that came to my mind was Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Because if Jesus is God, like we believe, how is it that Jesus gets tempted in the wilderness when we just read that God cannot be tempted by evil? I don't really know if that makes sense. So, so let's read through real fast the, um, the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Because I think once we break down some of the context and the language, it'll be a little bit more clear as to what's happening. So it says this in, uh, in verse 1 in Matthew 4, that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell the stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hand so you won't ever hurt your foot on a stone. He told Jesus to jump. (laughs) And Jesus responded, The scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Okay, so there's the story. Jesus was being tempted uh, by the devil. So how do we reconcile Jesus being tempted? Jesus is God. But we just read in, in verse 13, that God cannot be tempted by evil. What's going on here? Well, it may seem on the surface that Jesus was being tempted, but that's not the case. See, the problem is, is when we think of being tempted, right? At least, at least me, this could be all my, all my own problem. But when I think of being tempted, I think of this struggle of wanting to do what I know is wrong and the other side of the struggle of knowing that I should, right? So if I'm being tempted, I'm like, oh gosh, this this really is hard because I, you know, part of my flesh or part of, you know, my mind is wanting to do this, but I know it is wrong. And that's how I view temptation. And I, I at least think that's how the majority of people view temptation as this struggle, right? So if we think of temptation in that sense, it seems problematic, that, that Jesus is being tempted, that Jesus is like, oh man, like the devil just, he keeps coming at me and a part of me wants to do it because I'm starving and, and part of me wants to just go ahead and, and have the angels, you know, lift me up. But that's not what's really happening. So let's break this down. So in, in the first verse, when it says that Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil, that word tempted is the Greek word parazo, which literally means to test. So this is important for us to understand because also in verse seven, when Jesus snaps back at the devil and he says, you must not test the Lord, your God, the, the word test is ek perazo, which is part of a word of ek and then the other word perazo, and which means literally to test thoroughly. So the word tempt, it, it can kind of 
throw us off from what's really happening. It doesn't mean that Jesus was sitting there going, oh man, like I really, I really want to do this devil, but I know that the father said it's wrong. That's not what's happening. It literally just means that he was being tested, that the devil was trying to get Jesus to do something. Not that Jesus was actually struggling between doing what was right and what was wrong. So on to verse 14, and we're going to kind of break down more of what temptation means following these two verses. Um, it says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it has conceived or when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Now, I want to point out an importance of translations here because um, I normally read from the New Living Translation and all the verses I'm reading through here, except for verses 14 and 15, are from the New Living Translation. But in the New Living Translation for verse 14, it says that temptation comes from our own desires and that if we're not careful, that can make us think that all temptation Every single time anyone is tested or tempted, that it comes from our desires. And it's clear from like what we just read in Matthew 4 that Jesus was tested by the devil, not by his own desires. So I'm reading from the ESV from verses 14 and 15 because it gives us a better understanding that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. It's not saying that all temptation comes from our desires, but that when we are lured into our own desires that's when temptation follows. Okay. So reading through verses 14 and 15, Jacob gives us zero excuse. Like he gives us no slack for falling into temptation. See, what we have to understand and what Jacob makes clear is that temptation is not something that is only done to you. It's something that you can do to yourself. It's something that your desires can bring out of you if we're not careful. And this is so important. I cannot tell you how many times people can fall into this trap of blaming the devil for every single temptation that comes their way. Can I tell you something? Not every bad thought, not every temptation, not every urge to do something wrong comes from the devil. We need to stop with this notion because what it does is that it takes away our own personal responsibility for being better. It takes away our own personal responsibility for identifying our problems and our problems with our our evil desires that every one of us has, and it puts all of the responsibility on the devil. How are we ever able to improve and walk a better life with Jesus if we don't recognize that the problem sometimes is ourselves? So yes, the devil can test you, but he doesn't give you the desires. He doesn't give you the urge to act on it. This is an important distinction to make. See, the enemy can throw test your way. When we're talking about temptation and tests, the enemy can throw tests your way, just like he tested Jesus, right? He can throw test your way, but actually being tempted to act on those things comes from our desires. Like I said, Jesus was tested in the wilderness, but he wasn't tempted with how we understand temptation. He, he had no desire to act on the test that the devil was throwing his way. It's so important that we understand this distinction. It is crucial that we understand this distinction. L let me prove my point, right? So think of something that you hate, that you absolutely 
hate or that you hate doing, right? Think of something that never in your entire life have you ever thought it would be a good idea or that it would be fun to do. So for me, example, um, I absolutely fear deep ocean. I oh, <laughs> I fear deep water. I'm talking about like in the ocean, right? Where you don't know what's below you. Some of y'all clowns love going out in the ocean and, and, and paddling your little feet, just asking for some sharks to come nibble on them joints. <laughs> but that's not me. I absolutely hate it. It's a huge fear of mine. So I have absolutely zero desire to ever go into the ocean. Absolutely zero. You will not catch me ever doing this. So taking this scenario, the enemy, the devil, right? He can never tempt me to actually go hop into the ocean and play with some sharks. It ain't going to happen. Why? Because I hate it. I have zero desire. <laughs> the desires in my, in my heart and in my life will never align with jumping in the ocean to play with some sharks. So he can test me, right? The, the the devil can easily, when I'm standing out near the ocean or if I'm on a boat in the middle of the ocean, which first of all, you would never catch me doing. If I was in that scenario and the devil tried to whisper in my ear and say, hey, Dante, yo, you should go jump in that ocean. Or if I had some friends that were like, hey, Dante, yo, <laughs> go jump in there, dog. I can guarantee you without a shadow of a doubt that that would never happen because although I was being tested I had no desire to act on it. Now, on the flip side, I love me a good burger, a good burger, In-N-Out, McDonald's. I don't care what y'all say. That's some good gourmet stuff, right? I love me a good burger. So, so if the devil were to throw a temptation my way or a test my way and say, hey, Dante, I know you're on a diet, but you should eat that burger. There is a very good possibility that I would fall for that test and I would give in to temptation. Why? Because I desired to do so. I desired to do so. So when Jacob tells us that our desires can lead to temptation, he's doing us a favor. Because now he is giving us an idea of what the source is to the temptation that we fall into. And now that we can identify the source, we can actually start to fix the problem. And can I tell you, it's more than just blaming it all on the devil. We have to take responsibility for our own sinful desires and actions at some point or another if we're ever going to improve and start living a better life. So on to verse 16. He goes on and he says, don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God, our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a, sh a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. This is so beautiful. This speaks to how precious we are in the eyes of God. And it also gives us insight as to why God can be grieved by our rejection. Uh, we hear about this all the time in the Old Testament stories, especially with the Israelites in the exile and wandering through the wilderness. You know, when God saw how, how sinful and depraved his chosen people were, it made him angry. It grieved him. It wasn't something joyful that he, that he liked having to go through. And what does this mean? This means that God clearly sees us as a prized possession. And so, it, yeah, it, it does, you know, 
grieve God when we when we sin and we fall into temptation like that, but also it should give us some hope. Because out of all creation, right, out of all the animals, out of everything that there possibly is, God chose to reveal himself to us. He chose to go into a covenant with us and no one else. That, that's truly special. I love that. That's beautiful. So on to verse 19. He says, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. This is a simple principle, right? There's really not anything that you could like break down all deep and and get all philosophical about. It's such a a simple principle that we should be using every single day. Like think about it. I wonder how our political and cultural differences would look if we actually followed the simple instruction that Jacob given us. It's so simple. It's just three keys, three important steps. Now, the only thing that could be a little bit difficult is that all three of these steps are necessary. If you fail one of them, then you end up failing at all three. So for instance, right, if you are slow to listen, instead of being quick to listen, if you're slow to listen, you will inevitably be fast to speak before you understand what's truly going on. And you will end up getting angry faster because you are not understanding what the other person is trying to say. And if you are fast to speak, but you end up not being quick to listen, you'll end up getting angry. And if you are fast to get angry and you won't listen, you'll end up being quick to speak. So imagine, right? (laughs) This really, it, it frustrates me sometimes when I read the Bible and I read some of these simple things and I'm like, dude, Like, why can't we just do this? Like, I'm not saying I do it, right? (laughs) I'm a failure in every sense. But it's like, man, if only we could get this down. Imagine if our political discussions went like this, right? Where instead of everyone arguing, people were actually listening and taking the time to understand the point of view of people that disagreed with them. And imagine if if people were um, slow to speak, right? And, and and they weren't just quickly spouting off things, but they actually were slow to speak and thinking through what they're saying. And imagine if people were slow to get angry. And instead of just attributing malice intent to everyone who disagrees, they were slow to get angry and they could actually sit there and think, huh, maybe this person's a good person, but they just have a different point of view. Maybe this all stems from our desires to be right. Our desires to avoid conflict, that we can allow ourselves to be tempted to treat others so poorly if we disagree with them. Now, although that is an interpretation I pulled from this, I do think what Jacob is saying here in verse 19, it does reference God's word. I think that's the original reference. Um, We hear in verse 21, going on into the next few verses, um, he says, so get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts for it has the power to save your souls. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise you are only fooling yourself for if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that has set you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. 
I took I took some time to try and think through verses 23 and 24 when he's talking about faith being or not or sorry when he's talking about listening to the word and not obeying as being a comparison of looking at yourself in a mirror and walking away and forgetting what you look like and this interests me and i wonder if i may, might have been looking into it or thinking about it a little bit too hard but i thought of something that was was pretty cool and it it shows how just genius um this comparison of a mirror is that jacob uses so think about it a mirror is able to reflect reality in a way that without the mirror you would be constrained to your fixed point of view the the mirror is able to reflect reality it gives you a point of view of actual reality that without it you would not have seen that point of view you wouldn't have been able to see yourself your face is a reality that everyone else gets to experience but without a mirror or something of the sorts you would be missing out on a crucial part of reality a mirror relays things about yourself that otherwise couldn't fully be known. Now, I know this may seem like I'm reading too much into it, but think about this. Why why is this important? You know, because he's drawing this comparison between the word and a mirror. Now, here's what's interesting about the word, is that the word gives us insight to reality that without it, we wouldn't know it. The word, just like a mirror, lets us see a a point of view of reality that not only is true, but it is crucial to understanding who we are, why we are here, why we matter. This is what the word does. And we can take mirrors for granted, right? But without the ability to mirror Right? Without, without having a mirror, without having a phone or a camera or, or reflective surface where we're able to see ourselves, we will be clueless to our image. And I think this is the point I'm trying to get at, is that the word, without the word, right, we have no reference to why we exist. We have no mirror to allow us to see the importance of our existence and why we exist. The word clues us in to our image, being made in God's image. And it gives us a view of reality that is necessary to maintain and uphold that image. So this is why it's so important that we don't just glance at the word or don't just read it and allow it to you know, flow in one ear and out the other. This is why it's so important that we obey the word. Because if we don't, we are literally missing out and ignoring a point of view of reality that is so far advanced, that is so, so, that is so much more beautiful and insightful than the point of view that we are able to have. I think that's really, really cool that he makes that comparison. It's so deep when you think about it. On to verse 26, if you claim to be religious and don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Dang. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Let me ask you a question. Do we live out the pure 
and genuine religion that Jacob talks about here? Do, do we live that out? See, because I think we might have the understanding of religion a little bit confused today. If you ask yourself this, what does it mean to be religious? Most people would probably say something like this. It means believing in God or going to church or, or reading your Bible. It means that you, that you pray a lot. It means that you're spiritual. That's what it would mean to be religious. I mean, even Webster's Dictionary defines religion as relating to or manifesting faithful devotion to an acknowledged ultimate reality or deity. And if, it, if that's all that religion entails, then it seems clear to me that the religion that we have been living out and the religion that Jacob talks about here and the, and the religion that Jacob wants us to live out, these are two completely different things. And can I tell you something? Only one of us got it right. And can I tell you something else? The only one that got it right was Jacob, who's speaking through the Holy Spirit. I want to point out something that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. And if you know the Bible, you're like, oh, that's the love chapter. See, most of us love 1 Corinthians 13 because it tells us what love is. And man, I don't know about y'all, but I've taken some of the verses in this love chapter and I've used it to try and justify me getting upset with uh, people who are supposed to love me, right? It said said that love is kind and love doesn't judge. And I'm like, you judging me. But but really, 1 Corinthians 13 is is a manual for how we should be living. But I want to focus not on the popular love verses here. I want to focus on verses one through three, because Paul gives us a little bit of insight to what this pure and genuine religion truly looks like when it's acted out. He says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of the angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and I possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Can I tell y'all something? God does not care about our belief, our church attendance, or the amount of scripture that we can cite if we are not loving and caring for his people. God does not care if we are religious with how we would define it as believing in God or going to church or reading our Bible or praying or or having faithful devotion to an ultimate deity. God does not care about that if we do not love his people. Jacob didn't say that pure and genuine religion is being able to cite the Bible. He didn't say that pure and genuine religion means going to church. He didn't say that pure and genuine religion means that you believe in God. Can I tell you something? The Bible tells us that even the the demons believe in God. They know that he exists. They acknowledge that Jesus is the son of God, but pure and genuine religion, let's read it one more time, means that you care for orphans and widows in their distress and you refuse to let the world corrupt you. So if I ask this again, do we live out this pure and genuine religion? 
Now, I can't speak for everybody. Maybe you do, but if I'm being honest and transparent, I know I haven't been. I haven't even gotten close to this. And how does it make the popularized mainstream Christian church look when we have these multi-million dollar facilities? We got these nice cars we're driving in. These nice homes, our church buildings are huge. We have full-on concerts for worship. We got the lights, the instruments, everything in between. How does it make us look when we have all of these things? And there are still children down the block who are hungry. How does it make us look when we have all of these things and we flaunt it and we're like, look at how many people we get to attend What does that mean when there's people in that same city, probably even people that attend that same church who are struggling to try and pay their bills and feed their children? How does that make us look when we have plenty of orphans and widows and and poor people and people who are struggling? How does that make us look when we're enjoying the the lavish wealth that we've been blessed with. Is that pure and genuine religion in the eyes of God? I'd probably have to say no. But that wraps up our our scripture study of the first chapter of James, a.k.a. Jacob better known as my boy Jacob. Man, I hope y'all enjoyed this. I really do. Uh, We're going to be hopping in to chapter two probably next week, unless... There's something else I want to talk about. Go ahead, like I said in the beginning, if you got questions, send them in to the email, youchristianpod at gmail.com, and we will do a Q&A session when we get enough questions, all right? Y'all have a great day.